Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We've been talking so far in the show about a messy European marriage. So for a change of pace, here's the story of a messy European divorce. And two things to keep in mind. First, divorces among people with money are always more complicated. And second, the man who wanted this divorce was in a particular hurry to get all his paperwork squared away. The powerful have always been trying to exert their priority of time over other people, uh, and other people have had to shape their own times around the powerful and influential within a society. Jason Farman is a media studies scholar at the University of Maryland, and he investigates a phenomenon that has changed a lot over the years, something I doubt you think much about, except when you're ticked off about how slowly YouTube is loading, and that something is the act of waiting, which Henry VIII, the wealthy fellow who wanted the divorce, wasn't too good at. So he has uh, a group of very powerful people write a letter to the Pope asking for dispensation. Uh, There are, I think, about 80 people who sign this document. They all attach their seals to it, marking that they are important people. They send the letter to the Pope, and the Pope decides to wait. He decides to not respond to the letter. He's exercising his own power here by saying, I'm not going to respond to uh, this request. And... Henry VIII decides, I'm too powerful to wait. Waiting, Farman says, has always been a function of technology. Once that technology was no more than a horse and carriage, then messages started to move faster on steamships and railroads and through pneumatic tubes and telephone lines, and then email and texts. People complain, we've become a society that doesn't want to wait for anything. But Farman, the author of Delayed Response, The Art of Waiting from the Ancient to the Instant World, says that people have always worried about wait times, no matter how much technology has progressed. Almost 300 years after Henry divorced his wife, the British fought a major battle against the Americans. Thousands of people died. It was called the Battle of New Orleans. But the thing was, the war was over. It had been for two weeks. The folks in charge had decided to head into battle while still waiting for word from Europe where a peace treaty had been signed. You see this throughout history, especially in this moment of time in American history when a typical letter might take 40 days to travel down the East Coast uh, of the United States. So people were used to waiting for correspondence, uh, and it really shaped the rhythms of life. All of our lives are impacted, sometimes profoundly, by the act of waiting. For those who died in the Battle of New Orleans, the wait couldn't have been much more consequential. But we're always at the mercy of how fast information can get to us. And one big turning point in that story is a lonely, humble invention, the postage stamp. So you see that... um People prior to this era, prior to the introduction of uh, postage stamps in the United States, would send a letter on a very special occasion. Uh, It cost a lot. It was often like a collect call uh, where you would write the letter, address it, and then the person on the receiving end would pay postage on it. So you were really unsure about how much that would cost uh, that person. And it was you didn't know if that was a burden at the time for the person. So when the stamps were introduced, it allowed people a cheap and standardized way to keep in touch with each other. So this shifted the perception of letter writing. So the speed of delivery increased alongside an inexpensive and standardized cost, which meant that Hmm. more and more people were writing. And by the Civil War, they were writing um, just millions and millions of letters uh, back home as you had all of these soldiers moving around the country trying to keep in touch with their loved ones back home and could afford to do so. 
uh, letter writing became a, a two-way process. So it wasn't that I was just writing a letter to update you. It was I was writing a letter and I'm expecting a response back because you can. Mm -hmm. It's it's cheap. It's affordable. You can do it. And it's uh, relatively quick compared to the late 1700s when letters took 40 days versus the Civil War. You could get a, a letter in around 10 days. Uh, so... Writing letters was a, a vital component of what it meant to be a soldier at the time. And so delivery was really essential. And what you had at this moment as well, interestingly, was the mail service then delivering it to people's homes uh, instead of people having to go to the post office to pick up their mail. Oh, that's interesting. Home delivery was not, didn't always exist. No, people okay. used to have to go to the post office to pick up letters. Uh, and so you didn't know if a letter arrived for you. And uh, one postal worker was arriving to work and saw a very long line of wives of soldiers waiting to get inside the post office to see if a letter had been delivered. It was this extraordinary line of these anxious people waiting to hear from mm. their spouses mm. Uh, and he said, you know, this is traumatic. We need to find a new way to do this. And he decided to mm. institute home deliveries to these people. And since then, it's been a, a part of our daily lives. You know, I mentioned at the beginning that people are always like uh, things have sped up so much in the modern world. People are so bad at waiting now. I wonder, you know, when you think about your own work on this project and, and looking back yourself, do you think that's true? That was one of the initial inquiries that got me into this research. I was curious about how our technologies have sped up our connections uh, with each other and has that ultimately shaped what it means to, to live and experience time. My assumption was that with modern technologies and mobile phones, that the pace of life has accelerated to such a degree that it would be remarkable. So I went into the research with that assumption, and I ended up being uh, proven wrong over really? and over again. You see, you see people throughout history talking about the acceleration of life and culture, uh, that life is speeding up. You can trace this back uh, to definitely to the 19th century when things sped up with telegraphs and the pneumatic tube mailing system that allowed people to connect at a pace that was really unprecedented. But you can trace this back all the way to uh, the Roman Empire. You have Seneca who is looking at his desk and it's cluttered with paper. All of a sudden there's this new rise of documents and the importance of documents hmm. and this new bureaucracy that arises with the Roman Empire's new way of doing things, which meant you had to keep track of all these documents. And he's looking around. He's like, I can't keep up with this. You know, mm. it's creating a busyness of mind that that is disrupting me. I, I can no longer rest because of the acceleration of culture. Uh, so we see as technologies have increased the pace of life. Uh, it's been a common sentiment uh, throughout history that that we feel the pull of acceleration because of the ways technologies are increasing the speed between connections and also just in general increasing the speed of life uh, that, that we feel. That's so interesting that people were like during the Roman Empire, like things have yeah. really changed. You know, things are really speeding up. And I yes. wonder like how much that's technology, which is, you mm -hmm. know, there, to some degree, yes, things are always changing and, you know, a human life Life is can be long and you can be alive for things to really change. Like maybe there were no telephones when you were a kid, but then you grow up and you're and you live in a time when there are telephones and that really changes right. things. But I also wonder how much of it is like the human brain uh, and, and like a sort of maybe playing a trick on ourselves and thinking mm -hmm. that like, oh, you know, in the past things were right. so different when like our memory of the past isn't perfect. Plus, we were kids and you know, maybe we don't know what we're talking about. 
Right. As we encounter a technology, our brains definitely adapt to it. Uh, and this is true as well, how we encounter different wait times. Uh, we set expectations. We develop a certain uh, expectation and, and context for what it means to encounter this technology, encounter this moment in, in uh, our lives. And that shifts as the technology shifts and as the context shift. So uh, I think part of it is a cognitive process uh, that that our brains are adapting continually to wait times. Um, I, you can look at the internet as a very basic example of this. If you load a browser and try to load a movie right now, uh, the amount of time it takes before we get a little irritated with that buffering icon <laughs> spinning a little too long yeah. is very different from maybe the early 2000s or late 90s totally. when we're trying to load a picture. Yes. Um, so we set those expectations. We're willing to wait based on what we assume the technology can do. And we make those assumptions uh, based on our experience, our human experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we are constantly shifting with relation to how the technologies are moving and, and how we encounter them. So definitely part of it is a cognitive thing. I would say also that part of it is a cultural thing as well. I think we can't isolate technology apart from the ways it is taken up by a particular society. So in, in my life, just watching the rise of email and, mm -hmm. and my inbox is just terrible. I'm awful at email. Um, and part of it is, you know, for me, the the ways that work has shifted and the expectations of availability based on something like email or your mobile phone and, mm -hmm. and workers being able to be contacted by uh, their their work and be available at all times. Uh, so part of it is the technology. Part of it is then how it's taken up by that society, how it's used by the society, which shifts our sense of busyness and, and how we are expected to use our time uh, in a given age. We've been talking a lot about inventions that allowed us to get information to people more quickly. Um, and one that I barely, barely knew about it, I, I saw it in a museum once, um, was pneumatic tubes, which by the late 1800s, I didn't realize, were in places like New York and in Philly and in Chicago. Do you want to talk about what pneumatic tubes are and um, what they did uh, for wait times for messages? So these started in Europe and were very popular in cities around Europe where you had these tubes running underground in major cities uh, and postal workers would put letters and small packages in these canisters, these brass canisters that would then get pushed around the city by compressed air to a different postal station. Uh, and those were instituted here in the late 1890s in five cities in the United States. And these were introduced alongside the dominant mail delivery system of the time, which was a horse and wagon. Okay. So all of a sudden, you had these tubes pushing these canisters of mail around a city at 30 miles an hour under city streets. People were getting letters within the hour. It ran That's all day amazing. long. And people could instant message each other. They could drop a note <laughs> into the pneumatic tubes. It'd get there in an hour, and the person would respond within an hour. You could coordinate with your partners uh, or your employees all day long with the pneumatic tubes. And so people felt that they were living in the future, yeah. that instant communication was finally available to us. And I think our own enchantment with the instant and instantaneous culture and communication, the seeds of that were really planted back with the pneumatic tube system when the everyday person was 
able to send a message and have it uh, seemingly instantly delivered to its recipient. Um, so these ran for a very long time. If you talk to anybody who lived in New York in the 1950s, they might remember getting letters through pneumatic tubes. And, you know, they, they still function in places like banks or hospitals today. Uh, but in terms of mail delivery, they were discontinued in the United States in the 1950s. That's an incredible thing, the notion that, like, a letter could go across Chicago in an hour. I mean, if you think about email, if I email you and you email me back in an hour, that's pretty good. Or, right. if you you know, <laughs> within the hour you read my email, that's pretty fast. Like, th- that is. is not that different from the world that we live in now. And yet we think, like, how advanced we are. But that this was going right. on in the 1890s is incredible to me. Yeah, it really ushered in this this modern culture of instantaneous communication, of of being able to keep in touch with people at a pace that was really unprecedented. Uh, so you had snowstorms, or in Manhattan you had traffic. You know, as the automobile was introduced, hmm. mail cars just took forever to crawl through uh, the city streets, and the pneumatic tubes weren't affected by any of that. So it was an infrastructure that allowed messages to be sent and received. Uh, regardless of what the conditions were uh, above ground on on the city streets of Manhattan, uh, so you if you think about uh, a place like New York City when these were introduced in the 1890s, all the way through the 1950s, you have the introduction of cars, of planes, you have two world wars, you have a massive ballooning population uh, that quintupled over that time. So it's a massively different space across all of those eras. And then year after year, the pneumatic tube delivers a message at the exact same rate that it did in the 1890s. It's a very similar pace all the way across, regardless of how cramped the city gets and how crowded those streets get uh, with cars, packed with cars. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Jason Farman, the author of Delayed Response, The Art of Waiting from the Ancient to the Instant World. Um you know, you, you cite a study that people under 34 uh, check their phones something like an average of 150 times a day. Um, so in some ways, I feel like in the modern world, uh, the art of getting back to people is less about do you know what they told you? Because you do, because you are checking all the time. Um, and it has a lot more to do with how long you want to keep them waiting, like what the message is in there, the weight itself is a message. Uh, did you find that when you were like talking to different people about waiting in today's society? That was one of the things that was um, a massive realization to me was seeing how wait times themselves were meaningful and interpreted. So as we text people, you know, we're sending words or images or videos to each other. But that delay, that wait time, how long does it take you to respond to that person is content in and of itself. It's something we interpret. Um, so it's not just the words. It's a little bit like nonverbal communication. As you're talking to somebody, you see a facial gesture that maybe you said something that they don't approve of. And you, right. they don't have to say a word. Right. Uh, it's just their facial expression lets you know you said something wrong. The same exact kind of nonverbal communication applies to time. So if you text somebody something perhaps... Um, intimately important to you. Uh, You're being vulnerable with them, and then they don't respond. There's this time lag. You interpret that. You begin to question yourself. Did I say something wrong? Did this person interpret it in a negative kind of way? Uh, And you see that in romantic relationships, especially today, where 
predominantly people are finding love, romance, and sex using apps, and they begin these relationships by messaging each other. Uh, so messages are a central feature of romance today, and time becomes a really important component of that. How quickly did this person respond to me? Too quickly? Uh, am I responding too quickly? Should I wait a day? Uh, there are right. all the all of these norms that are built into messaging and courting and romance and love that uh, that are shaped around time and how we interpret time. Hmm. Meanwhile, on the other side of this, you talk about like Amazon and Google doing these studies of how fast it takes a page to load. And we are talking fractions of a second here because th- these pages don't take very long to load. And finding both of them at different times in their history that if people have to wait another fraction of a second for something to happen, they're like, this this is, like this isn't worth it. Forget this. Like, I'm waiting another right. tenth of a second. No way. That, to me, was one of the fascinating aspects of that research that, that emerged, that for Amazon, if we are, if a- customers are on average forced to wait about a tenth of a second on their site, they could lose up to 1% of their revenue. And you're just saying uh, like a tenth of a second. That's nothing. It's, it's just nothing. It's actually not even something you can experience on an embodied level. Uh, the tenth of a second uh, is about the time it takes for a sensation to go from a nerve ending to your brain. Okay. Um, so it's actually not on the scale of like the human sensorium. We can't even like physically encounter or experience in a cognitive kind of way um, a tenth of a second. But it's enough to where it affects us. Uh, there is some kind of embodied and, and cognitive relationship to the site that affects us. We can't put words to it in a moment. You can't be. You can't say to yourself. That was a really long tenth of a second. You know, I'm going to move on. Instead, uh, it's just something that's an embodied relationship to how we experience time with technology. Our brain shapes around it, and we develop expectations around it. And if it doesn't meet those expectations, we move on, unless something calls us back. Have we reached a point of just, like, impatience that you think is bad and unhealthy? Do you think we should think differently about waiting? I think we should think differently about waiting. I don't know that we are more impatient people than people in the past necessarily. I think I see that throughout history, that we've been impatient. Uh, We want our time to be used well. Uh, But I think that we are trying to eliminate waiting in such a way that I find troubling. I question what will happen if waiting is removed from our lives, uh, if we do fill every second of the day with something, which in my own life, as I started writing this book, I would say was very true. In my own life, waiting in line, waiting in general, I would take out my phone and occupy myself in some capacity. Waiting was not something I embraced. It was something that had to be sort of tactically approached uh, and and worked around. Um, And then I began to think about the creative capacities that are lost with waiting uh, as waiting gets eliminated from our lives. We have what's called the default network in our brain that activates when we're daydreaming. And if we're not bored, if we're not daydreaming, we're missing out on a really key part of the creative mind uh, that can unlock answers and new innovative solutions only when we're waiting, only Mm. when we're bored and daydreaming Mm. can some of those answers just click. Um, And I think people can identify with that. If you have those epiphanies in the shower or while you're driving and just dazing out, 
those moments are activated because of wait times. So I think creativity and innovation and our own health, in a sense, are at jeopardy if we're pulling out the phone every single time we have to wait or if we don't just pause and embrace waiting as an opportunity rather than a barrier. Jason Farman is a media studies scholar at the University of Maryland. He writes about waiting in Delayed Response, The Art of Waiting from the Ancient to the Instant World. Jason, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you want to learn more about the history of pneumatic tubes, and really, why wouldn't you? We've got an article and pictures of them from The Atlantic that's at our website, innovationhub.org.